Hello, welcome to the Green Antlers Waterfowl Podcast. This is Sarah Fowler, your host. Uh, you know, Councillor Fowler, Small Community Sarah, Director at Large on the AVICC Executive Board. That stands for Association of Vancouver Island Coastal Communities. And today's episode is uh, episode 51 of season two. So this is a really exciting second last episode of our second season. I've got a really good one planned for you as the last episode. But I'm in the backyard today at the Green Antler and I'm going to be reading uh, Values by Mark Carney, Building a Better World for All. I got this library book. I originally um, put it on hold when I was uh, away last summer. Someone from Climate Caucus recommended it. I think it was someone from the Niagara region. And uh, so finally, you know, a year later, I got it at my home library in BC with the Vancouver Island um, Regional Library Board. And I'm going to just pick up on page 20 where I left off. And I am already really into this book, even though I am only on page 20. But um, I'm really glad that I got it recommended. And uh, so, values. Aquinas allowed variations from the just price, but only as payment for the merchant's labor and only to degrees that would be sufficient to allow the merchant their accustomed standard of living, a concession that in practice could allow considerable tolerance of different prices and profits. A century after Aquinas, St. Antonio, 1389-1459, justified prices on the basis of the concept of disutility. The case when a man needs something. Are you leaving now, Jess? Yeah. Okay, let me pause this for a second. Oh, God. I like to just, oh, there she is. Hi. I like to swing around there, jump off that platform. I haven't seen. Sorry about that interruption. My neighbor is leaving town and uh, got to say goodbye. It's so nice when friends come to visit because they're working tree planters, but then they have to go. She used to live here in Tassis and she used to farm here, but then she got a, a farm in Quebec. Mm-hmm. So she's off to plant trees in Quebec next. Bon voyage, mon ami. So where did I leave off? We'll start here. The case when a man needs something, the loss of which will be a grave inconvenience to the owner. The latter may, in these circumstances, demand a higher price, not looking to the value of the thing itself, but its value to him, i.e. not looking to the thing, but to the inconvenience its loss will occasion him. Sant'Antonio rationalized interest with similar logic pointing out that the money involved could have secured capital and the capital could have earned a profit. Therefore, the loss of the profit could justly be charged as interest. But he held throughout that gains were not ends, merely 
means to an ultimate spiritual object of all activity. When divining the value theorems of the canonists for, or for that matter, the Greek philosophers, it is critical to recognize the extent to which their value theories and economics were unified aspects of a much larger world, indeed heavenly view. For our purposes, it is sufficient to conclude that the canonists prioritized a welfare with the other world context over temporal wealth. They subordinated profit to moral ends and they insisted that economic offices be discharged consistent with the doctrine of stewardship. In this last respect, they provide some of the foundations for modern ideas for corporate purpose and stakeholder capitalism, albeit without the vibrant financial sector or the sense of secular duty to make a profit. The canonists' influence over economic conduct waned with the Reformation and the growing separation of religious doctrines and economic activity. Their heirs were, in turn, the mercantilists and the physiocrats, both of those whose value systems favored real-world political economy over higher conceptions of value and welfare. The 15th and 16th centuries brought new technologies and modes of organization that gave us that gave rise to commercial society. Maritime trade grew with the new navigational instruments. Farming began to lose its feudal characteristics and the economy moved towards large organized markets under guilds and the great trading companies such as East India Company that were monopolistically controlled under official protection. In response, a new economic doctrine, mercantilism, was born. At its heart, mercantilism was the view that maximizing net exports was the best route to national prosperity and that a country's wealth was measured by gold by the the byproducts of these surpluses. The significance of mercantilism lay largely in its subjugation substitution that is of national competitive state for the moral order of the canonists as will be discussed in chapter 3 the legacy of the monarch was shifting from being grounded in divine right to being the hobbesian protector first against the scourge scourges of the age and gradually of new trade routes and commercial opportunities. The common good was redefined in national political terms, beginning the quest of value theories that determined how best to advance the wealth of nations. Despite such lofty aims, however, the mercantilist literature was primarily intended to advance the fortunes of a select group of individuals and corporations whose pursuit of personal gain was clothed in a large larger national purpose. Attitudes towards that constituted rent-seeking changed during the mercantilist mercantilist era. During this age of economic of European conquest of the so-called new world and the plunder of its gold and silver, value was assigned to activities that developed and protected trade routes and accumulated precious metals. 
as Thomas Munn, a director of the East India Company, declared, national wealth was enhanced by selling more to strangers yearly than we consume of theirs in value. Moving things around came to be viewed as value creation rather than value extraction. Perceptions of value changed accordingly. In his lecture on money, the Florentine merchant and historian Bernardo Davanzati, 1529-1606, constructed a theory of value based on utility that focused on the drivers of the demand for goods, a natural consequence of valuing merchants who controlled trading, not production processes. Devan Zadi also distinguished value in exchange from value in use, identifying the paradox of value in the process. He argued that gold has no value in use, but great value in exchange because it can be used to command other goods. Around the same time, an influential approach to value was developed by Sir William Petty, 1623 to 87, an anatomist, a physician and member of parliament who had been a tax administrator in Ireland under Oliver Cromwell's Commonwealth government. With his training as a physician and heavily influenced by the scientific eras of advances of the era, Petty searched for natural and intrinsic laws of reality, including natural value. According to Petty, natural value was determined by the factors of production, land and labor, and the market price, actual price, of any commodity would fluctuate around its natural value, natural price. Petty simplified his theory of value to one based on labor by solving for a par value for land in terms of labor. That labor value, in turn, was determined by a form of subsistence wage, which was the unit of measure consisting of the easiest gotten food from the respective countries of the world. In this respect, Petty foreshadows the labor theories of value of Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and Karl Marx. And while he dabbled in value theory, Petty was more concerned with being the first to calculate the nation's total, the nation's total output or wealth, rather than how to that output came about. And it was through these statistical breakthroughs that he made his most lasting contributions. To measure the nation's production, he formed a series of judgments about which activities were productive and which were not. To him, the only expenditures worth counting were those devoted to necessities such as food, housing, and clothes, and consistent consistent with mercantilist thought, though that promoted merchant trade. Those that promoted merchant trade. The professions, including the law, clergy, and finance, were mere facilitators. By explicitly identifying the productive sphere of the economy, Petty implicitly defined what was valuable. Moreover, by creating the practice of calculating national accounts, which would form the basis for GDP, Petty created a framework to which governments and societies still default as the measure of national wealth and which these they use as a compass to steer their economic policies. Mercantilism contained little that can be cleared, 
clearly recognized as value theory. Labor was presented as a source of value, although there were no consensus that it was the measure of value. Money was viewed as a store of value, but not necessarily as the measure of revealed utility, as would be argued by neoclassists like Javons and Marshall in the late 19th century, and as is generally accepted today. See the next chapter. Mercantilism purported to be a theory of how a nation became rich, though it was, in practice, a justification of what today we would term crony capitalism. <laughs> in the 18th and 19th centuries, deeper inquiries into the source of value focused on the key factors of production. First, physiocrats identified land, understandably in understandably in predominantly agrarian societies, and then the economies industrialized, the classes like Smith and Ricardo concentrated on labor. The physiocrats were French Enlightenment philosophers who founded a scientific approach to economic analysis and developed the first formal land theory of value. Their name derived from the Greek for government by nature, alluded to a natural order and term a term that appealed to ideals to ideas of both a natural social contract and unchanging laws governing economic processes from the latter and consistent with the coining of the phrase laissez-faire laissez-passer le monde va dit lui-même by their most prominent leaders francois Quesnay, 1894 to 1774, the physiocrats were wary of government intervention, a radical position in a mercantile age living under an absolute monarchy. In contrast to the mercantilist focus on a positive trade balance and the accumulation of gold, the physiocrats believed that the wealth of nations derived solely from agriculture and that the production of manufacturing goods was relevant to the consumption of the agricultural surplus. Rents were the returns to absentee owners of the land on which the agricultural production took place. The most revolutionary contributions of the physiocrats arose from those methodological approaches to the economy and value creation. In these regards, they are considered by some as the first economists. They were certainly to the first to view the economy as a system. In the mid-18th century, Quesnay, King Louis XV's physician and advisor, formulated the first systematic theory of value that also classified which economic activities were and were not productive. Petty's classifications of his national accounts had not been linked to any underlying theory. In his seminal work, Tableau Economique, published in 1758, Quesnay showed on a single page how value was created and circulated in the economy by using a metabolic analogy with pumps introducing new value and tubes removing value from the system. Quesnay's model demonstrated how an entire economy could grow based on the value generated by a small group of its members. The subject of value looms large in physiocratic thought, but practical political ends still influence their categories of productive and unproductive industrial activities. Quesnay identified farmers as a small group of value creators 
and highlighted the enormous pressures on them. Agriculture was highly taxed both by absentee and licentious nobles and by a central government engaged in frequent wars. Further burdens were imposed by mercantilism policies that suppressed the prices of agricultural goods in favor of an export-oriented manufacturing sector that could secure gold and therefore was thought increasing increase the national wealth. Quesnay's tableau supported farmers against the mercantilists as it showed that all the value arose from the land, period. His classification overturned the mercantilist approach which had placed exchange and what was gained from it, gold, at the center of value creation. Now, value was linked inextricably with production, albeit only agricultural production. In Quesnay's tableau, as long as what is produced is greater than what is consumed, the resulting surplus could be reinvested and the economy would grow. Conversely, if value extrication by unproductive sectors exceeded value creation by agriculture, the economy would decline. This conception of surplus and reinstatement dividing, driving the economy forward would be adopted by the classes. Quesnay's depiction of the economy was comprehensive, but his view of what constituted protective activities was exceptionally narrow. His contemporary A.R.J. Turgot also saw wealth as coming solely from lamb, but saw usefulness in artisans who prepared the materials produced by cultivators. Landowners remained as disposable class who merely collected rents, though Turgot acknowledged that members of the disposable class may offer services such as the administration of justice or assisting in war efforts that respond to the general needs of society. The approach of the physiocrats complemented the land theory of value of the Irish-born contemporary Richard Cantillon, 1680 to 1734. Cantillon was briefly a successful speculator in France and later published one of the early great works of economic theory, Essays sur la nature de commerce en général. It is one of few texts that spans both the objective and subjective schools of value. With respect to the former, Cantillon began with a labor and land theory of value like Petty, but then reduced the determinants of intrinsic value to land by assuming constant returns to scale and equating the value of a laborer with that of twice the produce of the land they consume. When allowing for variations of the skill and status of laborers, while also discovering how resources were allocated between different markets and when the market price diverges from its intrinsic land value, with respect to the late latter, Cantillian's pioneering of two-stage general equilibrium model of the economy and his careful description of a supply and demand mechanism for the determination of short-run market price, albeit not long-run natural price, made him a forefather in the 19th century marginalistic, marginalist revolution. The physiocrats' main contribution to the understanding of value and value creation were the emphasis on the economy as a system. Their ex- 
exploration of the different sources of income and their explicit consideration of its distribution. Although it seems arcane today, Quesnay's Tableau Economique showed the economy as a complex organism that needed to be analyzed, understood, and nurtured, much like the human body. The economy could not simply be bent to suit the wills of the merchant class or the absolute monarch. The Comte de Mirabeau, an important figure during the French Revolution, considered Quesnay's tableau to be one of the world's three great discoveries, equaled only by the invention of printing and the discovery of money. That judgment was not, however, has not, however, stood the test of time, perhaps because physiocrats concluded that land is the source of all value soon came into question as economies industrialized rapidly and production processes changed radically. Only one year after Quenet died, Richard Arkwright filed his grand patent to mechanize weaving and Bolton and Watt founded their firm of manufacture steam engines. The British Industrial Revolution was moving into full swing. Page 26, The Classes. By the end of the 18th century, the economic, social, and political consequences of the Industrial Revolution brought new economic theories of value from a succession of outstanding thinkers, these individuals who would become known as the classis. Classicus. Classicus. Included three giants whose influence persists to this day. Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and Karl Marx. The focus of the classicists was political economy. With the study with the study of economics integral to the study of society. Their approach centered on the development of markets and placed the growth and distribution of value squarely in the context of the enormous social and technological changes then underway. They worked during the unprecedented period of growth, urbanization, industrialization, and globalization. The classicists would have found would have found profoundly alien the view widespread today that economics is a neutral technical discipline which can be pursued in isolation from such dynamics. Although their views differed in many respects, the classical economic economists shared three basic ideals. First, the value of goods and services determined by the value of inputs that produce them, principally labor. Second, economies are fundamentally dynamic and the relations between workers, landlords, and industrialists change with new technologies and methods of production. This process promotes value creation and changes its distribution. Third, the process of exchange is central to both the distribution and creation of value. For example, Ricardo focused on the gains from the exchange of goods in foreign trade and marks on the exchange of value of work and the distribution of income. Smith, in contrast, was concerned with exchange across the entire economic and social spheres. To Smith, all of human life involved exchange, with the consequence that we can no more extricate his theories of markets and value creation from their broader social context than we could separate the view on value of the canonists from their 
Systems of Social Philosophy and Ecclesiastical Jurisprudence. Adam Smith was born in Kirkaldi, Fife, in 1723. His father, who died two months before Adam's birth, had been a senior solicitor, judge advocate, and local comptroller of customs. Adam's mother was born Margaret Douglas, daughter of the landed Robert Douglas of Strathendry, also in Fife. Strathendry, yeah. Smith was close to his mother, who encouraged him to pursue his scholarly ambitions. He was educated locally, studied social philosophy at the age of 14 in the University of Glasgow, and then Balliol College, Oxford. As his biographer, Jesse Norman, notes, Smith was unhappy at Oxford as his college was Jacobite, Tory, fractional, costly, and scotophobic, and... Adam Smith was Presbyterian, Whiggish, sociable, impugnish, and a Scot. After graduating, Smith delivered a successful series of public lectures at the University of Glasgow, obtained a professorship in the moral philosophy at Glasgow, and began a lifelong collaboration with his friend and friendship with David Hume. In later life, he took a tutoring position with the son of the Duke of Buchluch, the richest landowner in Scotland. That allowed him to travel throughout Europe, where he met other intellectual leaders of his day, including Quesnay, and once, back in the British Isles, Benjamin Franklin. Smith published two magisterial works, The Theory of Moral Sentiments in 1759 and an inquiry into the wealth of nations in 1776, 1759 and 1776. The later is the most purchased and often and most often cited and arguably the least read book in economics. To understand the totality of Smith's thinking, it should not be considered in isolation from its predecessor, the theory of moral sentiments. <clears throat> Widely viewed as a father economics, Smith's enduring relevance is a testament to the power and breadth of his scholarship. For example, during my time at the Bank of England, we frequently drew on his insights to address issues ranging from the future of money in the age of crypto assets to how to rebuild a social foundation from financial markets following the financial crisis of 20, 2008, subject for later in this book. In doing so, we were inspired by Smith, the sage of politics, morality, ethics, and jurisprudence, not Smith, the market fundamentalist of legend and political expediency of both the right and left. Indeed, Smith's writing warned of mistakes in equating money with capital and divorcing economic capital from its social partner, errors that can rise from reading only a few admittingly brilliant pages of The Wealth of Nations. This caricature of Smith as the father of laissez-faire grossly devalues this most considered and Catholic of worldly philosophers. The phrase invisible hand appears only once in that book and but three times in Smith's collected works. In an effort to explain why Scotland 
had been able to make such an incredible transformation during his lifetime to become a center of the European Enlightenment, Smith concentrated on the cultural, economic, and social implications of the evolution of commercial society. That moment when people move away from dependence on one person or another to a world of commercial interaction, a world where every person is a merchant who lives by exchange. He also had a deeper project. He looked at all major aspects of human life, philosophy, religion, political economy, jurisprudence, arts, the science, and languages, in order to devise a science of man that could serve as the basis for every other branch of human knowledge. In keeping with the scientific method, Smith's conclusions were based on observation and experience, not dogma. The central concept that links all of Smith's works is the idea that continuous exchange forms part of all human interactions. This is not the exchange of goods and services and markets, of meanings and language, and of regard and esteem in the formation of moral and social norms. Humans are social animals who form themselves in action and interaction with each other across all spheres of their existence. Smith's goal in writing The theory of moral sentiments was to explain the source of humankind's ability to form moral judgments, given that people begin life with no moral sentiments. He believed that we form our norms, values, as a matter of social physiological by wishing to love or to be lovely, that is, to be well thought of or to be well regarded. Smith proposes a theory of mutual sympathy, in which the act of observing others and seeing the judgments they form makes people see how others perceive their behavior and therefore become more aware of themselves. The feedback we receive from perceiving or imagining others' judgments creates an incentive to achieve mutual sympathy of sentiments. That leads people to develop habits and then principles of behavior which come to constitute their conscience. So, moral sentiments are not inherent. To use the modern terminology of Richard Dawkins, they are social memes that are learned, imitated, and passed on. Like genetic memes, they can mutate in behavioral cascades and tipping points. It is in this context that Smith was the first to put markers on the center of economics, a move that fundamentally reoriented political economy. Specifically, the wealth of nations is built on the exchange in markets that are at the center of a commercial society. For most, its most famous passage describes this invisible hand in action. <clears throat> it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interests. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love, and never talk to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages. Again, Smith's conception of markers must be seen as a broader social context. In a broader social context, he emphasized that they may come into being more, come into being because of private purpose but they are part of an evolving social order and must have a public value. 
Smith would not have recognized the disembodied mathematical constructs of markets that characterize modern economics and policymaking. Rather, markets are living institutions embedded in a culture, practice, traditions, and trust of the day. This is the genus of his first work, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Smith also saw that markets were far from monolithic or benevolent, and that while they have common features, there are different, they are as different as all humans are. Smith was well-schooled in how markets actually work from the market for corn to the market for bills of exchange, so he was careful to distinguish the workings of the markets for land, labor, financial assets, and commercial products. Smith addressed, too, the question of what happens when markets go wrong. He was well aware of the damage that monopolies could do, and he viewed the free market as one that was free of rent. He included a rearing attack on mercantilists, or what we would now refer to as crony capitalists. Like Quesnay, he argued that mercantilist policies restricted competition and trade and undercut industry, which was the true source of value creation in the economy. Smith's contributions to our understanding of value follow from this analysis. First, he demonstrated that markets, properly grounded in social trust, are engines of prosperity. His famous description of the divisions of labor in pin factories revealed a groundbreaking understanding of how the combination of competition and changes to the organization of work could drive productivity, growth, and general plenty. Second, although Smith adopted the same systematic approach to economic growth as the physiocrats, he widened the concept of the productive sphere of the economy from agriculture to include industry. In both systems, growth arises from the surplus that are reinvested in productive activities, in Smith's case, manufacturing, rather than in productive consumption of luxuries or rent-seeking. That's a big one. Third, Smith was wary of the dangers of capture of government by business. He consistently warned of the collusive nature of business interests, including fixing the highest price, which can be squeezed out of the buyers. Sounds like the gas market now. He cautioned that a business-dominated political system would allow a conspiracy of industry against consumers, with the former scheming to influence politics and legislation. Consistent with this view, he promoted free trade to break the power of the mercantilists and increase the share of manufacturers in a competitive market. While his understanding of markets and industrial organization was original, Smith's attempt to develop a formal theory of value were less successful. He believed that industrial workers in commercial society, not as for Quesnay, farmers in an agrarian one, were the heart of the productive economy. Manufacturing labor, not land, was the main source of value, with total value creation proportional to the amount of time spent by workers on production. The value of any commodity, therefore, to the person who possesses it and who means not to use or consume it himself, but to exchange it for other commodities, is equal to the quantity of labor which it enables him to purchase or command. Labor, therefore, is the real measure of exchangeable value in all commodities. Whew, hallelujah. 
Smith acknowledges that differences in labor quality mean that simply measuring the hours of work that went into producing an object is not equivalent to the effort. And he highlights the ways in which a good's real value determined by labor can be distinct from the money price of the good, which he calls its nominal price. Labor alone, therefore, never varying in its own value is alone is never varying in its own value is alone the ultimate and real standard by which the value of all commodities can at all times and places be estimated and compared. It is their real price. Money is the nominal price. In a barter economy, Smith argues, goods could be more easily traded as ratios that directly reflect the labor required to produce them. As in his famous example, if among a nation of hunters, for example, it usually costs twice the labor to kill a beaver, which it does to kill a deer. One beaver should naturally exchange for or be worth two deer. In a world where almost all exchanges are transacted using money, however, the price of a good is an estimate of the ultimate value of that good, which is determined by labor. Smith didn't resolve that dri- what drives gaps between market prices and labor value, leaving it to Ricardo and Marx to advance his thinking on the labor theory of value. Although Smith emphasized that effective market functioning requires particular sentiments, trust, fairness, and integrity, he didn't recognize the paradox of how the act of valuing can change those sentiments. As we will see in later chapters, this can set in a, in a train a dynamic process that undermines market functioning while changing society's values. Arguably the greatest economist of his time, Ricardo was born in London near the current Liverpool Street Station in 1772, the third of six sons in a family that would number 15 grown children. Excuse me. His father was a Sephardic Jew from Portugal who had settled in England after a spell in Holland. Ricardo followed his father into the city where he made a fortune worth more than a hundred million pounds in today's money, principally by speculating on government debt. After betting on the right outcome in the Battle of Waterloo, allegedly on false information, he retired an extremely wealthy man to his Gloucestershire estate where he pursued an interest in political economy that had originally been prompted by his reading The Wealth of Nations at the turn of the century. David Ricardo's writings on political economy were slightly less ambitious than Smith's in that he didn't aspire to full science of man, but his ideas have been just as influential. Ricardo advanced key elements of Smith's work by making at least two stunning contributions to economic thought. First, he put forward a compelling and original case for free trade through the theory of comparative advantage, which would become a central tenet of economic liberalism. And second, he formalized the labor theory of value, which would become a cornerstone of Marxism. In 1815, a controversy arose in England over proposed corn laws which were designed to regulate the import and export of grain and in the process protect the economic interest of domestic landlords. The prospect of tariffs on wheat imports and the resulting higher domestic prices on grain 
prompted Ricardo to publish his influential essay on the influence of a low price of corn on the profits of a stock, 1815. In it, he argued that raising tariffs on grain imports would increase the rents of landlords, decrease the profits of manufacturers, and slow economic growth. Ricardo's opposition was part of a general, more general aversion to mercantilism that he shared with Adam Smith. Smith had recognized that trade was a two-way exchange and that imports could help countries increase exports and boost economic growth. Consumers, Smith argued, in the wealth of nations should buy products from where they are cheapest. All production did not all production did was create monopolies, which was a great enemy to good management. Ricardo took Smith's ideas further. First, he articulated that what came to be known... Oh, am I still recording here? Let me see. Oh, good, I am. Uh, where was I? Uh... Ricardo took... Smith's ideas further. First, he articulated what came to be known as the law of diminishing marginal returns, one of the most important in economics. It holds that as more and more resources are combined in production with a fixed resource, for example, the more labor and machinery are used on a fixed parcel of land, the incremental increase of output will diminish. Restricting foreign inputs would bring more marginal land into production, raising grain prices, increasing rents to landlords, reducing the profits of manufacturers, and as a consequence, lessen their capacity to invest in new production. As we see it in the next chapter, the analog on the demand side is diminishing marginal utility, which holds that the more of a good one consumes, such as ice cream on a sunny day, the less the enjoyment derived from each additional scoop. Ricardo's main argument against the Corn Laws, specifically and mercantilism in general, was based on his formulation of what became known as a law of comparative advantage, which he originally called comparative costs. He showed that even if one country was absolutely superior to another in the production of all goods, there could still be gains from trade based on differences in the relative efficiency of production between them. These gains arise from each country specializing in producing the good for which is comparative domestic cost is lower. It is better for the country to exchange on more advantageous terms with its trading partner than with its own economy, with its own labor. As the great Paul Samuelson once quipped, comparative advantage is one of the few things in economics that is true, but not obvious. The appendix to this book details the non, this non-obvious truth. Ricardo began his most famous work, Principles of Political Economy and Taxation, 1817, with his labor theory of value. The value of a commodity or the quantity of any other commodity for which it will exchange depends on the relative quality quantity of labor which is necessary for its production and not on the greater or less compensation which is paid for that labor. He distinguished between 
the price of a good or service and its underlying value. Like Aristotle and Adam Smith, he held that the relative values between two goods were determined by the relative quantities of labor needed to make them. Under this pure theory of labor value, it took twice as much labor to produce a bottle of wine as a loaf of bread. The wine would be twice as valuable. Actual prices could fluctuate in the short run with wages and profits, but in the long run, they would return to their natural values anchored by the amount of labor employed to produce them. Ricardo generalized this theory by adding returns to land, rent, and capital profits, and then concentrated on how the distributions of the returns to the factors of production varied. He used time as a measure of labor quantity, accommodated the different skills of labor by comparing wages to productivity, and assumed that capital's influence on value was neutralized since it was merely stored up in labor. He added a theory of land rent, arguing that rent is determined by the price of goods rather than determining rather than determining the price of goods. And provided reasons why profits had varying effects on value, such as different capital intensities of industries. In Principles of Political Economy and Taxation, Ricardo set out laws determining the distribution of everything produced by three classes of the community, landlords, laborers, and the owners of the capital. He viewed the distribution of wages as the issue that ultimately regulates the rate of growth and wealth of a nation. He believed that returns to labor would tend towards a substance wage anchored by the price of food, which in turn would reflect the marginal land brought into production This would become known as the Iron Law of Wages. As wages rose and fell in line with the cost of necessities, profits would vary inversely. Ricardo also determined that rents would increase as population grows owing to the higher cost of cultivating more food because of diminishing returns. As he observed in his essay on profits, profits depend on high or low wages, wages on the price of necessities, and the price of necessities chiefly on the price of food. Ricardo's theory of growth and accumulation follows from this. As profits grow, capitalism capitalists invest and expand production, which create more jobs and raise wages. This production this encourages population growth, pushing wages back to subsistence as more land is drawn into production. This in turn increases profits and rents and continues the cycle. As the economy grows, more and more people earn the subsistence wage. With the price of food ultimately regulating wages, the more productive that agriculture becomes, the lower the price of food and therefore wages and the higher the profits to manufacturing. These profits can be reinvested in further growth in manufacturing productive consumption. If agriculture is less productive, there is no surplus to reinvest and no growth. Rents are a draw on the surplus and therefore a drag on economic growth. Ricardo's approach to two major has two major shortcomings. First, his analysis tend to concentrate on monetary and fiscal factors and to underweigh the importance of the organization of 
production and the centrality of economic institutions. Most curiously, despite his careful reading of Smith, there is no mention of the division of labor as the fundamental institution and economic organization of economic organization. Second, Ricardo's deviation of his labor theory of value had a fundamental law, how to account for differences in the time horizon of the returns to the various factors of production. To solve for labor as a single determinant of value, he needed to establish a relationship between capital and labor as he had between land and labor based on the price of food and the subsistence wage. His solution was to treat capital as accumulated labor by observing that there were so many person hours required to make the machine. But this approach came unstuck when he realized that the time horizon of the returns to work, of the returns to work, that is daily or weekly or monthly wages, was much shorter than that on the return of physical capital, which would normally stretch out over years. It was left to Karl Marx to square the circle by focusing on labor power, the dynamics of wage bargaining, and what he saw as inherent instability of capitalism. Marx was a German philosopher, political economist, and revolutionary. Born in Trier in 1818, he studied law and philosophy at the universities of Bonn, Berlin, and Jena. He became radicalized at university as a member of the young Hegelians. Hegel's metaphysics had a profound influence on Marx. He adopted with enthusiasm Hegel's dialectic approach in which alternative truths were revealed through the process of criticizing concepts and their relations, inclusions, and omissions. The combination of that writing style, Marx's prodigious output, and his frequent revisions of text had spawned a wide range of interpretations of his writings, which, like Smith's, are often mired in commentators for support of their previously held positions. Due to his politics, Marx and his wife and children for decades lived in exile in London, where he continued to develop his thought in collaboration with Frederick Engels, often researching in the reading room of the British Museum. His best-known works are The Communist Manifesto, 1848, and three-volume Das Kapital, 1867. Although there were numerous other pamphlets and studies, and he left volumes, voluminous notes which have occupied scholars and adherents ever since, only 12 people attended his funeral, though now thousands visit his grave in Highgate Cemetery every year. Marx's political and philosophical thought have had enormous influence on subsequent intellectual, economic, and political history, and his name remains an adjective, a noun, and a school of social theory. From the perspective of value, Marx made several contributions. First, like Smith, the canonist, and Aristotle, he placed value in the social and political context, and as a consequence, in his, it is difficult to extricate his approach from his broader theory theoretical framework (laughs) he was concerned with the progress of social history generally deriding the classics for their inadequate historical perspective 
He stressed that economic processes did not exist in a social vacuum, but were conditioned by time, place, and the past. <laughs> the categories of bourgeoisie society provide an insight into the structure and relations of production of all formerly existing social relationships, and the ruins of these social relations were used in the creation of bourgeoisie society. So too could the ruins of a bourgeoisie society provide the elements of a new scientific political economy. Hmm. <clears throat> Marx was even more explicit than Smith in his insistence that production is a social activity that depends on the prevailing form of social organization and techniques of production. He stressed that the nature of productive activities and the distribution of value changed over time. Second, Marx asserted that despite this ever-changing economic structure, there was one constant. The value of every good and service was determined by the labor that went into its production. To develop this conclusion, he continued that the tradition of objective theories of value that goes back to Aristotle and posits that every good has two values of use and exchange. Marx then added a definition definition of value or worth that is determined by the amount of social necessity necessity labor to produce it with social necessity necessity necessary 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 that's it social necessary labor to produce it with social necessary labor defined as the average skill an intensity of labor utilizing the most advanced technology. Surplus value is the difference between the exchange value of a product when it is sold and the exchange value of the inputs in its production, that is, labor and the labor embodied in the machines. So, like Smith and Ricardo, Marx took the view that labor is the sole source of use value or intrinsic value, but unlike them, he was able to solve for an invariant standard of value which by which the value of all other products could be determined this solution to the problem that had bedeviled ricardo of the differing time horizons of the return to labor and capital was central to marx's theory of economic and political dynamics marx argued that his law of labor what is now referred to as his labor theory of value, could explain the value of all commodities. Including the commodity that workers sell to capitalism, labor power, or their capacity to work. Marx's distinction between labor expended in production and labor power is critical. As, it, as a minimum, workers need to work Workers need to work for long enough to regenerate their labor power, receiving the amount equivalent to a subsistence wage. But their labor power is such that they can work longer if they do, surplus value is created. The genius of capitalism is to make this happen, and for capitalism, capitalists to then pocket the vast majority of the associated surplus value, paying workers only wage sufficient for workers to buy commodities like food and housing to store restore their strength to work. 
Marx asserted that the class struggle determines who receives the surplus. That is, the relative power of the workers and the capitalists who employ them determines workers' wages and the return to various forms of capital. If wages increase above the subsistence level necessary to restore labor power, capitalists would substitute more machines for workers. Discipline on labor power would also be exerted by what Marx termed a reserve army of labor. What and what of capital? The subject of Marx's magnus opus. Magnum opus. Marx identified several types, each of which receive portions of the surplus value created by labor. See the appendix for more details. Detailed relationship. Assume the capitalists have sufficient power and Marx saw Assuming the capitalists have sufficient power and Marx saw substantial evidence that they did, these dynamics explain how the economy moved forward. Capitalists appropriated most, if not all, of the labor surplus creating profits an excess return on their constant capital. Capitalists would then reinvest the net proceeds after any calls on them f- from interest-bearing and commercial capital in new machines expanding production. To Marx... Productive activities did not depend on the sector. Services as well as manufacturing could be produced, provided their labor produced a surplus that was reinvested in capital production. Marx foresaw Marx foresaw several reasons why capitalism, unlike the previous systems of feudalism and mercantilism, would be in a constant state of flux and fundamentally unstable. I heard your drumming. One central contradiction was the reinvestment of profits would increase mechanization, which would displace labor and reduce the only source of profits, labor power. The potential response would intensify the class struggle by attempting to reduce the exchange of value of the labor through of labor power through increasing the reserve army of labor and otherwise reducing the bargaining power of labor. Marx also saw that the growing general commercialization and financialization of the economy could ultimately undermine the growth of production. In his view, commercial and speculative financial firms do not add value to capitalist production. By comparing the increasing share of the surplus they diminish the profit in the economy available for reinvestment. Finally, the social dimension of capital would feed instability. Capital gives capitalists more power over workers who cannot realize their labor power in isolation from the means of production. Workers become alienated from their work because they do not own the means of production, and the surplus they create is taken away from them. For Marx, as for Aristotle and Aquinas, the exchange of value, or more appropriately, the exchange of just value, has moral as well as economic implications. Smith, Ricardo, and Marx each redrew the production frontier to include industry and focused on the implications of the new production process of the Industrial Revolution to the returns of the returns to labor and capital. They shared the idea that value was derived from production, particularly labor, and that any subsequent activities such as finance did not themselves create value. Although Marx used the classical concept of value, he applied his vast philosophical and sociological 
knowledge to reach conclusions in capital that diverged radically from them. It would demand a response from more orthodox value theorists. They did not wait long. As we will see in the subsequent chapters, that response set in train a process that was fundamentally changed perceptions of value from intrinsic to the good or activity that is produced to external in the eye of the beholder that consumes. We equate the market price of goods, activities, and labor with that worth, with their worth, and that worth with what society values. If left unacknowledged, this could have profound implications for how successful society addresses the large structural changes now being wrought by the combination of the fourth industrial revolution and the COVID crisis. So now I'm up to chapter two on page 40, perspectives of value, subjective value. But I'm going to go back because there's only three minutes left in this recording. I'm going to come back to a little dog-eared page that I marked, which was just before I started reading. I'm going to go back to page 19 on perspectives of value, objective value, and read this part about the Middle Ages. So, early objective theories of value. This is just a little recap of something that I read before I started recording. Of everything we possess, there are two uses. Both belong to the thing as such, but not in the same manner. For one is the proper and the other the improper or secondary use of it. For example, a shoe is used to wear and is used for exchange. Both are uses of the shoe. Aristotle's consideration of value were incidental to his primary concern, justice. Value from the form of utility or in-use value and is measured by labor. Aristotle's just price was the exchange of equal value in terms of labor, which differences in labor quality taken into account. He made no attempt to explain how commerce worked and therefore how prices were determined in a positive theory of value. In the Middle Ages, the canonists were philosopher-theologians who, like their Aristotelian forebearers, regarded economics as integral to ethical and moral philosophy. Their economic approach, therefore, cannot be divorced from the systems of social philosophy that were aspects of ecclesiastical jurisprudence. Those ultimate objects was achieving God's grace. Now I'm going to skip to this part that I find really interesting. There were few moral ills worse than ursery. In Dante's Inferno, ursers are consigned to the seventh circle of hell because they make money not from production, productive sources, nature, or art, but from speculative charges in interest rates. This theme of the evil of rent-seeking finance is... So I'm back to reading from Mark Carney's book, Values, Building a Better World. I left off on page 40 and at the top of chapter two, perspectives of value, subjective value, it says, 
If beauty is in the eye of the beholder, what about value? A few years a few years ago, a new record was set for the sale of a painting at a public auction when a mystery buyer paid 450 million for a rediscovered Leonardo da Vinci portrait of Christ, Salvatore Mundi. How do you value a 15th century canvas so badly damaged that most of the work was painted by the restorer? And why is it that depiction of the savior of the world who taught that blessed are the poor now in the private collection of one of the world's richest people is valued is value to the world obscured as its scarcity value is maximized around the same time as that auction i received a visit from the artist damien hurst he wanted to create his own money in the form of 2,000 virtually identical paintings of dots, 8 inches by 12, they would be distinguished by the names of songs on their backs. The paintings would be sold and then a market would be set up so that they could be traded. The art would be in the process of exchange. They would literally have exchange value! Exclamation point. Hearst was on to something. As befits one of the most commercially successful artists of his of this age, his art was at the very as was at the intersection of modern value and the value of money. The very act of valuing had artistic and commercial value. But what happened for to art for art's sake? Question mark. Moved by the COVID crisis, Francis Morris. The director of the phenomenally successful Tate Modern warned of the danger that blockbuster exhibitions, while enabling the museum to thrive, crowd out other crowd out other things that are equally important and valuable, such as the work of our learning and community teams or the great collection of British and international art Tate holds in trust for the nation. These tangible and intangible assets cannot be measured in numbers or cash returns. Morris's plea was that we should privilege what we really value. Environmental sustainability, local community, education, and engagement. If realized, her vision would rebalance the values of a superstar museum born from the legacy of the 19th century British industrialist Henry Tate. Tate was a contemporary of the group of economics who launched the neoclassical revolution and it is the effect of that economic school of value and values that contribute to Tate Modern's current struggle for art as a social space, not a marketplace. The neoclassics classicists launched an upheaval in value theory comparable to the Copernican revolution in science, whereas Copernicus transformed astronomy by moving its axis from the earth to the sun, the neoclassicists shifted the axis of value theory from objective factor of production to the subjective perceived value of goods to the consumer. As we have seen in objective theories of value, 
The value of the inputs, such as labor, determines the value of the output. With the neoclassicists, that causality is reversed. People value final goods that satisfy specific wants, and it is because those final goods are valued that the inputs that went into making them also have value. Labor does not give goods value. Labor is valued because the final good it helps create is valuable. It is, in its simplest variant, value flows from consumption to production, not in the opposite direction. The value of inputs is derived from the value we attribute to the outputs. The neoclassicist explained the value of a product through differences in utility or usefulness to the consumer. These economists tend to conceptualize utility in keeping with the utilitarianism of Jeremy Bentham rather than the welfareism of John Stuart Mill, a distinction with the difference as we shall see in subsequent chapters. The core of neoclassicism is embodied in William Jovon's statement that value depends entirely upon utility. In this, he was building on a long tradition. Early thinkers on the topic, such as Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, acknowledged the importance of demand and thus utility in setting value, though they never brought the concept into the center of their analysis as they were more concerned with ethical considerations and the normative determination of a just price. As a consequence, their observations on demand and the utility of goods were scattered throughout their writings and offer only hints of Javon's insight. Centuries after Aquinas, Davanzati connected value and utility in his Discourse on Coins, Davansadi argued that no matter what costs were incurred in producing a good, when it arrived on the market, its value would depend solely on the utility of the buyer, on the utility the buyer expects to receive. Merchants set the prices because only because they take the time to inform themselves carefully of the desires of their customers. Likewise, the English thinker Nicholas Barbon, 1640-98, anticipated subjective utility theory by suggesting that the natural value of goods was represented by their market price. The value of all wares arise from their use. Things of no use have no value, and the English phrase is, they are good for nothing. For long afterwards, the Italian cleric and diplomat Fernando Galani, 1728-87, borrowing from Davanzati's, among other, um, Davanzati, among others, developed a utility theory of value and scarcity sufficiently insightful to earn him the title Grandfather of the Marginal Revolution. While at the court of Versailles, he became a scourge of the physiocrats whose idea he viewed as unrealistic and dangerous. Another company of the physiocrats, contemporary, another contemporary of the physiocrats, the Scott John Law, 1671 to 1729, 
made an important advance in the theory of value by combining supply and demand. In his essay on the land bank, land law, that is, law described the famous water diamond paradox of value. His insight was to combine utility with scarcity. It may seem painfully obvious in retrospect, but his emphasis on the joint role of supply and demand in determining value broke with his predecessors. Unfortunately for the development of value theory, this dualistic analysis was suppressed for almost 200 years until its resurrection by the neoclassicists. The British philosopher and political economist John Stuart Mill, 1806-73, gave up the classical Ricardian search for absolute value for his belief that the value which a commodity will bring in any market is known no other than the value which in that market gives a demand just sufficient to carry off the existing supply. Mill also recognized the effect of demand on the supply in different time periods and he contributed the idea that supply and demand have a tendency to reach an equilibrium. In these respects, his work anticipated the approaching neoclassical school. He would have been uncomfortable, however, with their enthusiasm for value functions based on utility rather than welfare. Jean-Baptiste Say, 1767-1832, disavowed the labor theory of value and attempted a direct demonstration of how utility was reflected in price. In his Treatise on Political Economy, published in 1803, Say stated that utility is the capacity to satisfy wants and that value originates in utility. He went on to show that price is the measure of value and that value is the measure of utility. Hence, price measures utility from which it originated. This is more tautology than proof, but nonetheless kept the idea of utility-based value alive. The decisive breakthrough for subjective value theory came when the neoclassicist economist introduced another revolutionary concept, marginalism, to explain economic decision-making. In the 1870s, William J. Vaughan's 1835-82. In England, Leon Walras, 1834-1910. In Switzerland, and Karl Menger, 1840-1921. In Austria, all argued in different ways that value was determined on the margin, depending not on the total supply of a good, but on the particular unit that was being considered for purchase or sale at a given time and place. Take, for example, a consumer who is willing to buy a pair of shoes to wear to work for $100, even though the retail price is only $60. In addition, they are willing to buy an extra pair of the same shoes to wear on the weekend, but are only willing to pay $80 for their s this second pair because... Overall, they offer less additional benefit given they already have one pair. This consumer receives a total utility of $180 from the purchase 
from the two purchases but only pays 160 this 60 difference is considered the consumer surplus if the consumer was willing to buy a third pair of shoes as a backup for when he wears when one wears out but valued this pair at only 60 the total value of the shopping spree would rise to $240 and payment would rise to 180. Consumer surplus, however, would remain at 60 as the third pair was purchased for the exact amount at which the consumer valued them. The value of each subsequent pair of shoes is its marginal value and it's different from the average total value of the purchases as each pair of shoes is valued differently. Subjectivism says that utility is based on the preference of the consumer at a given time and place. And diminished marginal utility means that additional utility decreases with the additional amount consumed or held, as Menger writes. Value is thus nothing inherent in goods, no property of them, nor an independent thing existing by itself. It is a judgment that economizing men make about the importance of the good at their disposal for the maintenance of their lives and well-being. Hence, value does not exist outside the consciousness of men. So, the neoclassicalists argue value is subjective in that it is a function of our judgment and consciousness and marginal in that value depends upon the goods at our disposal, not on their total stock. Consider how the combination of marginalism and subjectivism resolves the water-diamond paradox. As Law had observed almost two centuries prior, part of the reason for the difference in the value of water and diamonds was relative scarcity, which, when combined with diminishing marginal utility of goods, means that Value decreases the more that the good is held or consumed, but this is inseparable to preferences, which depend on individuals, time, and circumstance. In a desert, water is exceptionally valuable and diamonds virtually useless. Thinking on the margin has become core to the economic way of thinking. Facing a choice, we consider not the total benefit or cost of a good or service in question, but the benefit and cost of this particular unit in the specific context. When deciding whether to buy a pair of shoes, we don't consider the total benefits of owning any footwear at all in our decision. Instead, we consider the benefits of adding the specific pair of shoes in question to our wardrobe. It's the marginal utility, not the total utility that matters. When it was at, when I was at graduate school, our college bar advertised itself as marginally better than the Westgate, the local pub. That endorsement was compelling to the economist who would pack it nightly, but curiously not to the sociologist or political scientist. As we shall see, such tribal reinforcements cause economists some blind spots such as when they apply the maximization of marginal utility by rational agents too widely 
when thinking about real-world issues. Javon's theory of political economy and Menger's principles of economics both developed the new tool of marginal analysis in 1871 as a means of understanding value, but they erred in trying to find a simple one-way cause-and-effect relationship between utility and value. Walras and Alfred Marshall, 1842-1924, would see that the cost of production, supply, and utility demand were interdependent and mutually determinant of each other's values. Walras independently discovered that the concept of marginal utility, but unlike Jevons and Menger, he saw a complex interrelated economic system. In his Elements of Pure Economics, Walras created his theoretical model of general equilibrium as a means of integrating the effects of both the demand and supply-side forces in the whole economy. This mathematical model of simultaneous equations conclude that in general equilibrium, everything depends upon everything else. Meanwhile, Marshall combined the, la- the best of classical analysis with the new tools of the marginalists in order to explain value in terms of the simultaneous interaction of supply and demand. One of his many insights was that market dynamics would vary over time because of technological diffusion and competition. Marshall divided his analysis into four time periods. First, in the market period, where time is short and supply is therefore fixed, the value of a good is determined solely on demand. Second, in the short run, when firms can change their production run but not their plant size, supply and demand jointly determine value. Third, In the medium term, where plant size itself can be altered, the effects of supply on value depend on whether the industry of a particular good has constant increasing or decreasing cost to scale. Finally, in the long run, which is which in the long run in which technology and population vary, the supply side conditions dominate. To Marshall, Taking into account the time and interdependence of economic variables as well as technological changes resolve any controversy over whether the cost of production or utility determines value. We might as reasonably dispute whether it is the upper or under blade of the pair of scissors that cuts a piece of paper as whether value is governed by utility or cost of production. Hmm. In the century since the neoclassicalists, subjective value theory has gone mainstream. The invisible hand of Adam Smith with our wants satisfied by exchanges in market has been generalized and formalized into the first fundamental theorem of welfare economics. This theorem demonstrates mathematically that competitive markets can lead to optimum equilibrium outcome in which no one can be made better off, known as Pareto optimality. All marginal benefits and costs are equalized. It is 
sometimes forgotten that this result holds only in an idealized world, namely under the strict conditions of perfect competition, no monopolies or oligopolies. Market, complete markets, no transaction costs, perfect information, and preferences that are non-satiated. The combination of subject-value theory, in which price equals value, and the curious understanding of the invisible hand, in which markets yield optimal outcomes under idealized conditions and supported by unseen social capital, promotes a view that all market outcomes equal value creation and with them the growth of the wealth and welfare of nations before turning to some of the potential consequences of this consensus it is important first to reflect a little more deeply on the meaning of utility that the economy is purported to be maximizing the subjective or marginal theory of value depicts all income as a reward for productive undertaking. This income is equal to its price, which is equal to value. In other words, the return for the good or services, service is equal to the utility that it provides to the purchaser. Under the strict conditions of a competitive market, the sum of all these utility-maximizing transactions in the economy realizes the greatest happiness of the greatest number of people. This is the economic manifestation of the utilitarian project pioneered by Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, and Henry Sedgwick in the 19th century. Utilitarianism holds that the most ethical choice will produce the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Utility is broader than usefulness. In the common conception that we have been using thus far, but it is arguably a narrower concept that is consistent with welfare or well-being, Bentham defines utility as <clears throat> that property in any object whereby it tends to produce benefit, advantage, pleasure, good, or happiness. All this in the present case comes to the same thing, or what comes again to the same thing. To prevent the happening of mischief, pain, evil, or unhappiness to the party whose interest is concerned. The very idea of happiness needs to be defined. People care about more than happiness, including including meaning, dignity, and a sense of purpose. Purely hedonic, hedonic measures of welfare focused on the pleasure and pain are inadequate. People seek meaning as well as pleasure. Some things, tools, money, principally, have use value. Others, friendship, knowledge, are valued for their own sake. In the words of Mill, nor is it only the moral part of man's nature, in the strict sense of the term, the desire of perfection, or the feeling of approving or of an accusing conscience, that he overlooks, he but faintly recognizes, as a fact of human nature, the pursuit of any other ideal end of its own sake, 
the sense of honor and personal dignity, that feeling of personal exaltation and degradation which acts independently of other people's opinion or even in defiance of it, the love of beauty, the passion of the artist, the love of order or congruity, of consistency in all things and conformity to their end, the love of power, not in the limited form of power over other human beings, but in abstract power, the power of making our volitions effectual, the love of action, the thirst for movement and activity, a principle scarcely scarcely of less influence in human life than its opposite, the love of ease, man, that most complex being is a very simple one in Bentham's eyes. In the case of Cass Sunstein, one of the world's most sophisticated regulators and academics, the actual practice of cost-benefit analysis attempts to implement Mill's conception of welfareism, not Bentham's utility. Sunstein helped pioneer the development of modern cost-benefit analysis and oversaw the use in the Obama White House at the head of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. By law, U.S. regulations must be rigorously assessed to see whether they make people's lives better, and it is not as simple as seeing whether the increase in aggregate happiness outweighs any rise in aggregate unhappiness. From his experience, cost-benefit analysis operates in a much broader domain than benthamite utility. It does not only focus on pleasure and pain, important as those are. Cost-benefit analysis includes everything that matters to people's welfare, including such qualitatively diverse goods as physical and mental health, freedom from pain, a sense of meaning, culture, clean air and water, animal welfare, safe food, pristine areas, and access to public buildings. One of the great challenges of evaluating public policies is how to compare these concepts with which are generally not priced. A challenge referred to as the knowledge problem. Policymakers have developed a range of tools to address this issue, including randomized control trials, retrospective analysis, and strategies to measure and react. All of these strategies seek to assign a monetary value to what money can't buy in order to make an incomp- uh, make a comprehensive assessment of policy on welfare. Their efforts to show that the knowledge problem can be overcome underscore the reality that there are many values that people hold that are not valued in the market. The sum of all market values does not equal total welfare. One example of value without a market price is that of life itself. The experience of COVID-19 has brought to the fore the practice of valuing life on both an absolute and quality-adjusted basis. This can occur when making difficult health decisions such as triaging patients 
or allocating scarce treatments in overwhelmed hospitals. It can also be applied in regulatory decisions about safety measures and about critical decisions that balance health and economic considerations such as when and how to end lockdowns and whether to reimpose them. We explore these issues in Chapter 10, but their prevalence shows the importance of society knowing its values. To recap, economic theories of value went from objective, which value tied to factors of production and how production takes place, to subjective, with value being in the eye of the beholder and determined by preferences. Today, it is widely assumed that there is no underlying intrinsic or fundamental value that isn't already reflected in the price. The market determines value and the intersection of supply and demand reveals it. In the increasingly common, it is increasingly common to equate the worth of society's value, that worth with society's values. This is a departure. Throughout history, value theories have been rooted in the socioeconomic circumstance and political economy of their day, adapting to reflect that what the society of the time values. That's why proto-economists distinguished between activities that were productive and unproductive and those that were value-creating and rent-extracting. Today, the concepts of unproductive activities and rent extraction have been largely discarded. All returns in the market are portrayed as just rewards for value creation. All that is priced can be mischaracterized as advancing the wealth and welfare of nations. The concept of value. Synchronous with economic theory... A century ago, it is now barely discussed. In her magisterial book, The Value of Everything, the economist Mariana Mazzucato makes the, force, makes the case forcefully that we need a contested debate on value. In particular, she emphasizes the importance of focusing on the process of value creation examining the distribution of its spoils and considering the contributions of activities to welfare. Tellingly, Mazzucato warns of the dangers of performativity. How we talk about things affects our behavior and argues that the source of value creation in the economy are modern myths. So pharmaceutical companies practice value-based pricing and financial speculation has moved from semi-parasitic to value-creating. Mainstream corporate governance promotes shareholder value by portraying shareholders as the biggest risk-takers while downplaying the risks that workers take with their careers or the benefit of public and social infrastructure. To Mazzucato, in a world where the concept of value is incredibly fuzzy anyone can call themselves a value creator there are a variety of consequences of the dominance of the subjective approach to value and the widespread ignorance of both its limitations and its impacts these can be grouped into four categories 
market failure, human frailties, the welfare of nations, and the theory of market sentiments. <clears throat> market failure. All economic theories are based on a number of assumptions, and many of their conclusions hold only a very specific circumstances in which Keynes' madmen in authority are usually unaware. Subjective value theory is no different. As we have seen at its core, subjective theory assumes an idealized world of perfect competition, commodity goods, and complete markets, a world in which consumers are rational agents. The reality of markets can mean that there are many cases where these assumptions do not hold, and this can drive a wedge between private and social value. For example, when there are oligopolies or monopolies, marginal benefits exceed marginal cost in equilibrium. In other words, when companies have market power, prices are too high and production is too low. Often that makes that market power exists because of rules, regulation, or the structures of markets. For example, network externalities in social media. Recall Smith's warning against government capture by business and his view that a free market was one that was free of rent. When there were externa- when there are externalities, costs or benefits are incurred or received by third parties over which they have no control. These externalities are not reflected in market prices, lead to equilibria with too much or too little production for socially optimal purposes. Negative externalities are some of the most important causes of the climate crisis. Although externalities can explain the limitations of property rights in achieving social optimal outcomes, the failure of private actors to take into account the harm their actions are causing others are also broadly a question of values or when or when there are incomplete markets there may be multiple equilibria many of which are inconsistent with welfare maximization in finance complete markets are often assumed for example for the hedging of risks when their absence is exposed under stress, widespread damage can be caused. As we will see in Chapter 7, this can lead to huge fluctuations on market values and adverse economic outcomes for people who are otherwise unconnected with financial dealings. As subsequent chapters explain, such real-world issues have been core cause of crisis in areas ranging from finance to climate. Subjective value theory also abstracts from the deeper conditions for markets to be fair and effective. As Smith stressed, markets are living institutions embedded in culture, practices, and traditions. As we shall see, values of trust, integrity, and fairness are critical to effective market functioning. There should be there should not be assumed or taken for granted. After all, Smith stressed that the practices, mores, and values of society are established and reinforced by the process of mutual sympathies. 
social capital needs to be nurtured for economic capital to grow. Human frailties. Whereas consumers in subjective value models are rational and forward-looking, behavioral science has demonstrated the many frailties we exhibit when making decisions, including commitment bias, availability bias, and tendency to hyperbolic discounting. In plain English, we tend to support our past decisions even if new information suggests they are wrong, We tend to think that examples that come readily to mind are more common than they are, and we are irrationally impatient. In this context, it is important to recall that subjective values are time and situation specific. Ice cream on a hot summer afternoon is more valuable than on a winter morning. Water in a desert is an essential, as are healthcare workers, ventilators, and testing capacity in a pandemic. If we have high discount rates, we value the present much more than the future. When we are less likely to make necessary investments today to reduce risk tomorrow, this is particularly true under uncertainty when the timing and magnitude of those risks cannot be precisely forecasted. The example of how these Human realities affect value and reveal values are legion. We didn't invest adequately in either pandemic preparedness or the capacity of our healthcare systems or care homes. If people were well-informed, rational, forward-looking, this would suggest that some econ- economists, uh, uh, to some economists, a value on human life that was considerably lower than society's revealed preferences preference come the virus struck once the virus struck society did not choose laissez-faire but rather supported lockdowns economic privatization to save lives at valuations well above those generally assumed in cost benefit models to take another example despite a history of financial crisis that stretches back eight centuries banks did not build up a adequate rainy day buffers in advance of the global financial crisis. And today, society is underinvesting in addressing climate change, even though action today will be far less costly than in the future. These tragedies of the horizon are manifestations of how yawning gaps between value and values can develop. They arise from human realities and will not be closed by addressing market imperfections alone. In the next part of the book begins to outline some broader value-based approaches that hold greater promise. The Welfare of Nations Different theories of value cannot be separated from the social, technological, and political dynamics of their time. Aristotle's economics were integral to the ethical and moral philosophy and to his primary concern justice the canonist economic approach was part of their social philosophy and theology the classicists focused on political economy at a time of unprecedented growth urbanization industrialization and globalization to varying degrees all those all these historic approaches to value recognize that the changing nature of production and trade determine the return on the factors of production and in particular 
the distribution of income and wealth in our society. An essential motivation of these theories has been to advance the wealth and welfare of nations. Approaches to value have helped define the activities that society viewed as productive and, as a consequence, influence public policies and set private priorities. The mercantilists supported commerce, the physiocrats extolled agriculture, and the classicists backed industry. Over the centuries, what has been considered productive has widened considerably and it now includes many activities such as finance that were previously viewed as rent-seeking. Now, at the advent of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, the consideration of which activities are productive and unproductive, value-creating and rent-seeking, should naturally again come to the fore. An advantage of the subjective approach to value is that it is neutral. Everything that is priced can be compared by means of a common, widely available standard, the market price. But from the perspective of welfare, it creates several issues. First, with basically everything priced counted as GDP, the shorthand widely used as a measure of national prosperity, there is a risk that the relative value of the future derives drives drivers of prosperity is obscured. Objective-based theories of value were careful to make the judgment concerning what was productive, but all that is value today, that is, what has a market price, is not equally productive or important to future value creation. Moreover, what is considered productive versus unproductive becomes self-fulfilling as being included in GDP is a marker of productiveness itself. For example, the economist Diane Coyle, Coyle, Coyle notes that the view that notes that the view that finance is a strategically important sector of the economy developed alongside changes in statistical methodology and designated it part of national production. Second, whereas economic infrastructure and economic capital are usually priced, social infrastructure and social capital generally are not. This can lead to underinvestment in what matters for well-being. In standard GDP accounting, government contributes no value added beyond public sector salaries Measurement of unpriced outputs would better reflect both living standards and economic performance. What captures performance during a crisis? A healthcare worker's salary or their heroic efforts in saving lives? Third, extensive research on the science of well-being finds that a wide range of determinants of human happiness. I will use these terms well-being and happiness interchangeably are not priced. These include mental and physical health, human relationships, community, and general social climate. This reality means that even if markets were perfectly competitive and complete, information was equally shared, there were no transaction costs, and people were rational, 
then the sum of their individual utility maximizing transactions would not maximize welfare. Fourth, consistent with the focus of value theories down the ages, distribution matters for welfare. And these benefits may not always be captured by monetary figures and their proxies. When there are large benefits for disadvantaged groups and only small costs for others, a policy may be welfare-enhancing despite what market value suggests. The allocation or incidence of costs and benefits matter matters, and even if losers lose more than gainers gain in monetary terms, we cannot exclude the possibility that the losers lose less than the gainers gain in welfare terms. Or in other words, an extra ten uh, extra thousand pounds means less to Mark Zuckerberg than five hundred pounds does to someone on the dole. In fact, this can be explained by the diminishing marginal utility of money. There is widespread evidence that above certain thresholds, small additional monetary gains or losses are relatively immaterial from a welfare perspective, whereas for the least well-off, they are material. <clears throat> the theory of market sentiments. Consider again the core message of Smith's theory of moral sentiments in which people form their norms and values as a matter of social psychology by wishing to be well thought of or well regarded what if what's measured influences perceptions of value or val and values subjectivism does not distinguish between productive and non-productive activities creative and rent-seeking if society values activities that are value extracting our sentiments could adjust accordingly could it even imply that anything that does not that is not priced is not valuable any assessment of the costs and benefit of a new policy must try to address this issue but how reasonable it is for people to conduct such complicated assessments. Or is it possible that with time and observation, market value increasingly becomes the measure of all things? Related, if that which is not a market is if that which is not in a market is not valued, will that encourage bringing more goods and activities into markets? And could that affect perceptions of their value, particularly when they relate to broader values ranging from awe to human dignity? Future chapters will explore whether by changing how we value, by extending the price system and defaulting to a market economy, we may be changing our values, or in the language of value theory, could the dominance of subjectivism corrode intrinsic value? Question mark. The paradox is that effective market functioning requires other sentiments such as trust, fairness, and integrity. 
whatever is broader merits if it is allowed to dominate subjective value theory could sow the seed of its demise by turning moral sentiments into market sentiments to explore these issues let's turn to the measure of value in our age money chapter three money gold and the age of consent this is such a good book today 5,500 tons of gold lie at the Bank of England's vaults, more than 190 million ounces. Think of the futility. The raw ore escaped from, scraped from the depths of the South African Transvaal or the Canadian Arctic. It is then refined, assayed, and shipped across the oceans to be brought through the Bank of England's Lothbury Gates to be buried once again. Once, when reflecting on gold's fate, the sculptor Sir Anthony Gormley conceived of bringing that journey to life. He would return both the gold and the observer to their origins by creating a sculpture made from the gold in the vaults. A solitary clay human figure on top of a carpet of gold on which people could walk said demented into the earth from whence they and the gold came. I suggested to him that the sculpture was unlikely to be seen given the security requirements. Understanding the true nature of value, he was relaxed. The value was in the creation, in the act, not the witness. The gold held in the vaults of the Bank of England has a market value in quotations, of $180 billion, though part of that market price is explained by the view that it that this gold held by central banks will never be sold but to other central banks. The gold is a vestige of a bygone era, era when gold backed money and an er, even earlier time when gold was money. Today, the Bank of England still holds the second largest gold stores in the world, most of it in other central banks after it sold the majority of its own reserve at the turn of the millennium. London remains the center of the private gold market. These superlatives are the product of an age when the Bank of England had an ironclad commitment to convert its currency on demand into gold and the pound was the very center of the international monetary system. The United Kingdom's own gold reserve now represents the equivalent of 17% of notes and coins in circulation and less than 1% of the total money supply, whereas once it was compared to a crown of thorns pressed down on the brow of laborers, as the demands of the gold peg would often force their wages down to restore competitiveness, today gold is a relic, shorn of its barbs. The story of how gold became money and then lost its crown reveals much of how money is used to value, to measure value and something of the relationship between value and values. And it raises the question, if gold no longer backs money, what does? Question mark. The role of money. Money is used to measure value. Money, rather than some direct measure of utility, 
like the fictitious utils of the introductory economic books. It is the unit for account of for prices and therefore subjective value in equilibrium. Money allows comparisons between goods, different goods, and between the same good across different times and circumstances. Without money, the decentralized exchange of Smith's invisible hand could not operate. Money unlocks the specialism of labor in the pin factory and the great increase in the quantity of work that results. Only money can solve the coincidence that wants between the butcher, the brewer, and the baker to produce our dinner. The alternative barter is ineffective if not wholly impractical because we are unlikely to have what the other party wants in the right proportions at the same time every time for every transaction. If But if money is used to measure value, which value gives money its value? The answer begins with its role. Money is defined by what it does. In The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith defines money by how well it serves as a store of value with which to transfer purchasing power from today to some future time, a medium of exchange with which to make payments for goods and services, and a unit of account with which to measure the value of a particular good, service, savings, or loan. These functions of money operate in a hierarchy. There are many assets that people view as storage of values. Storage of value. Houses, for instance, that is not used as medium of exchange. By comparison, an asset can act as a medium of exchange only if the two people are prepared to treat it as a store of value, at least temporarily. And for an asset to be considered a unit of account, it must be able to be used as a medium of exchange across a variety of transactions over time between several people. These hierarchy points, this hierarchy points to the reality that money is a social convention. We accept that a token has value whether made of metal, polymer, or code, because we expect that others will also do so readily and easily. Money is like an IOU that applies to everyone. We all owe you. <laughs> Before examining the history of money, it is useful to begin with where the history has led. The three forms of modern money. <clears throat> There's only going to be five minutes left on this recording, but I'll read uh, until it runs down. You were listening to Sarah Fowler and the Green Antler Waterfowl podcast, reading Mark Carney's Values, Building a Better World for All, and I'm on page 58. <clears throat> Before examining the history of money, it is useful to begin with where that history has led the three forms of modern money. First, banknotes issued by central banks such as the Adam Smith 20 pound, pound 20s. In the UK, these accounts for the just 3% of the stock of money and only 
about one quarter of all consumer transactions. When I was born, admittedly some time ago, most workers in the UK were paid weekly in cash and three quarters of people did not have a bank account. Cash's share of transaction has fallen steadily with the revolution of e-commerce and payment technologies. Its descendant accelerated during the pandemic, which with fears that currency's new role as a shared service brought the potential to transmit the disease. <clears throat> Next is electronic central bank money in the form of the reserves that commercial banks hold with their central bank, including to settle transactions with one another. This means that every transaction in the economy effectively settles with the central bank. Ensuring finality of payment such as such that payments once made are irrevocable and people can transact with confidence. Finally, the most significantly, the electronic deposits that commercial banks create when they extend loans to borrowers, accounting for fully 80% of the money in the system. This is a, the product of fractional reserve banking a practice pioneered in the 17th century by wealthy European families like the Medicis and developed in fits and starts in tandem with the quasi-public institutions like Sweden's Riksbank, which would become the world's first central bank. Fractional reserve banking is still the heart of modern finance. In fractional reserve banking, banks take deposits but only keep but keep only a fraction of their assets in gold, cash, or liquid securities, with the balance used to fund loans and investments. This improves the efficiencies of the financial system in that a well-run bank can extend credit to businesses and households on a scale that can be multiples of its loss-absorbing capital. If concerns about a bank's solvency emerge, however, Depositors can withdraw more funds than the bank can readily meet, not least because its loans cannot be immediately called in. They aren't liquid. Repeated crystallizations of this vulnerability over the centuries would eventually prompt the creation of both institutions of public oversight of private money, <coughs> pardon me, like banking supervision, and public safety nets like depositor insurance and the central bank's core role as lenders of last resort. <clears throat> Public institutions and values ultimately underwrite money. Oh, you're so kind. I'm almost done this recording. There's only a few seconds left. Mm. Thank you for the tea, my love. Over the centuries... Central banks have developed a crucial role as lenders of last resort to backstop solvent banks such as against such liquidity crises. In other words, when depositors or other creditors of a bank begin to grow concerned about a bank's solvency, the central bank, with its superior real-time information and unlimited resources in its own currency, can step in to bridge a temp temporary liquidity squeeze. The key is that 